Father, we thank you for bringing us here today. I pray that we would heed the call of the preacher to the congregation of the Hebrews, that we too would pay attention. Lord, we are so dull and deaf. We are so distracted by the things of the world. Our appetite has been cultivated for worldly things and for our own pleasure. And God, oftentimes we are starving for your word and we don't even know it. So I pray that this morning you would give us a true spiritual appetite and that you would send out your Holy Spirit to accomplish your perfect will this morning. Use this congregation to continue to attest to your perfect and holy word in this lost and dying world. We know that this world needs it so desperately. Lord, I want to lift up right now all of the victims of the coronavirus and all of the places that it's breaking out right now. I pray that you would stop that virus in its tracks and that you would even heal those who are infected with it. I pray, like the Christians are doing in Wuhan, China, that you would use Christian communities to step up and to care for the sick and for the dying, and you would use this uh, and redeem this horrible circumstance for your glory. God, that you would bring many to you and that you would even cause some to fear death and remember how fragile life is in light of this virus, that they might turn to Christ for eternal healing. Lord, I lift up all the sick in our own congregation this morning, God. We know that this winter has hit us hard, and so I want to lift up um, Steve to you as, as he came down with something this morning. Lord, I, of course, lift up Hazel Booth to you right now. I pray for her blood pressure that it would go down, that you'd be able to bring Hazel and Brandon and baby James home from the hospital. Lord, I pray for Livy, Lord. I pray for her lungs, Lord, that you would heal her, Father, and restore her to perfect health. God, I pray for Dolores Wilson as well, Father. Heal her, Father, and help her um, with her dementia, God. I pray for all those who I have not mentioned, Lord. You know who they are. You know all of our infirmities, and you are the great physician. Please bring your hand of healing. Lord, in, in the midst of our sickness, I pray that we would not grovel or complain, but I pray that we would be humbled and draw near to you in prayer, that you would use our physical sickness to, in our weakness to prove that you are our strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be preaching the word of God to you this morning. We're in Hebrews 2 today, um, and so we are continuing through the book of Hebrews, and we looked at chapter 1. It is really one of the greater chapters in all of Scripture that lifts up the, the preeminence of Christ and his amazing character. In chapter 2 today, we, you heard that the book of Hebrews is like a sermon. The preacher turns toward his congregation, and he starts to preach. He starts to exhort them in light of the Jesus that we saw in chapter 1. And so it is my hope that I would fall back and the Holy Spirit would use the author of Hebrews to preach to you this morning, and that you would hear the word of God and not Kurt's word this morning. As I mentioned from the announcements on March 6, again, I want to invite you to come see here at the church the nature documentary, Riot in the Dance Water. It's an amazing opportunity for us to see God's handiwork in his creation and not give that part of God's creation over to the environmentalists, for us to reclaim the glory of what God has done in all the waters and all the creatures in the waters. In listening to an interview about it this week, I heard some of the guys who filmed the sharks and they jumped out of the boat into shark-infested water, waters without a cage. No cage. They wanted to get up-close shots of sharks so that people like us could see them and, and glorify God in seeing them. The, you know what instructions they were given to keep safe? They were told, pay close attention, because sharks are sneaky, 
Don't drift from the boat because they'll come from behind you and you want the boat to be at your back. And lastly, look the sharks straight in the eye. If you look at a shark right in the eyes, it can see your eyes and it will be intimidated by you and it'll swim around you. That was the instructions they were given without a cage. Now, while we won't be dealing with sharks today, the author of Hebrews here in chapter 2 gives us very similar advice with dealing with something even more imminent and dangerous than sharks, and that is sin and our eternal salvation. We have very similar advice. Pay close attention. Don't drift. Wouldn't you agree that it doesn't do much good for this preacher of Hebrews to lift up the most amazing theology about Christ if nobody in the audience is listening? While there were some in the congregation that may have been sleepy in, in, in those days from staying up late the night before, as I trust no one here is, um, the real reason why he was likely telling his congregation to pay attention in verse 1 wasn't due to a lack of coffee or sleep, but it was because he knew his audience. He knew that they were prone to go back to their Jewish traditions, that they had seen Christ do a great work, but they had such attachment to Judaism and the whole Jewish structure of life that they were the second generation after the, after the eyewitnesses, and they were prone to fade back. And so that is the reason why he tells them to pay attention. The, the author of Hebrews, being a master preacher as he was, he used two arguments to grab their attention, and I pray that these arguments grab yours also this morning. We see in verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews 2 that we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, the Christian message, because of the authority and the consequences of Christ's message. Not only the original congregation, but we this morning at Cambrian Park Baptist Church, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard in the Christian message because of the authority of Christ and because of the consequences of the message. Unless you think that in the year 2020 that our problems are different than our are different than theirs and this doesn't apply to us anymore. Well, well may many of you are probably not considering going back to Judaism. Nevertheless, the authority of the word of God and the consequences of what happens if we neglect the salvation of Christ are still as important to you and in this room this morning as it was 2000 years ago. So if you, aren't, if you weren't already, pay close attention to the sermon, not because I say so, but because God does. Let's look at the first point, the authority of the message. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. In my excitement, I didn't turn to Hebrews. Let me open there. All right. Starting with verse 1, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So if you track what he's saying here, he's giving two reasons for the authority of the message. First, he says, therefore. Anytime you have a therefore, you have to look back. So the first reason why we have to listen and pay attention to this message is the one with the great authority that's speaking to us. If you were here the last two Sundays, you heard about this eternal cosmic king, Jesus Christ, the one 
who made you, the one upholds you right now in the very palm of his hand, the one who will one day judge you. He is the one who is speaking, and because of his authority, you must listen. The second reason he gives beyond the therefore is he uses a lesser to greater argument. He says here in verses 2, if the message declared by the angels proved reliable, and every transgression or, or disobedience received a just, just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So what he's doing there is he's using the lesser to the greater. If you listen to what the angels delivered, and while it's not said explicitly here, what he's referring to is the fact that the law in the Old Testament was delivered through the angels as a mediator to Moses. Stephen confirms this for us in Acts 7.53. He says, You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. So he's saying that if you uphold the old covenant in the Old Testament delivered by angels, if Jesus is greater than the angels, he created the angels and they worship him, how much more so should you listen to him? For us, like I said, the temptation might not be to go back to the old covenant, but very practically, we have to listen to the authority of Christ. Is it his authority so close to you that you say, his word is the final say in my life of how I make decisions. Is that true for you? It's one thing to say, oh, I believe he's, he's God and he's authoritative, but how personal is that authority to you? One easy test case for this, a practical example to see if, how his authority is playing out in your life. When we looked at the Sabbath or the fourth commandment from our last sermon series, the question for us is, will we pay close attention to what Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, says to us? Will we choose to set apart the Lord's Day Sunday as a day for rest and worship? Or will our family, friends, and employers have greater practical authority in our lives that keep us busy and away from resting and worshiping on the Lord's Day? I say America is largely failing, and although many people claim to be Christians, functionally, they do not have Christ as their final authority and say over how they spend their Sunday. The question the Hebrews were asking is one that we hear a lot today, too. Not only is Christ authoritative, but how can we be sure that not only what Christ said was true, but now that we're a generation later, that it's been passed down and transmitted accurately so that we still have the authoritative word for us today. We hear this same question today, and oftentimes you hear a terrible example. If you've ever played the game Telephone with your friends, you know that if you whisper a simple message into someone else's ear and you go around the room with 10 people or more, if you hear that message, it's, what, likely garbled. It's likely not the message that you you started with. Well, oftentimes that's used as a, a terrible example to say, this is how scripture is, therefore scripture must not be true. Therefore, it must have been lost in transmission somewhere. Well, this, the, the, the preacher to the Hebrews was already anticipating this objection, and he identifies it here, that not only can you, must you listen and pay attention because of the authority of the originator, but the authority of the messengers too, that transmission process as well. He gives us two legal witnesses for proof that we can in fact have the sure message of Christ. First, he says in verse three, that it was attested to us by those who heard, those who were there. Second, he says we can know that it's truly an authoritative word 
because God bore witness to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So not only can you talk to the people and go back to those who heard, but you also have God's stamp and seal of approval in the miraculous signs and gifts of the Holy Spirit that he's given to show that this message is truly authentic and it can't just be conjured up. Now, since this Hebrew congregation was just one generation away, they could go to those who had heard just the same way that you and I can probably find people who were in World War II and ask them about it. If someone wanted to lie to you today and say that, no, actually, actually Pearl Harbor never happened and tell you that lie, you could, other than Googling it, you could probably go find someone who is in World War II who experienced that firsthand and corroborate the evidence with them, and they could tell you that, in fact, it did happen. So for them, this is how close this generation was to the, the audible words of Jesus, so Jesus was around, you know, eighty thirty, and this sermon was likely preached around 80, 60, 65 or so. And so they're just one generation away. Many of these people in this congregation could have probably even asked their parents, what did you hear from Jesus? Was it accurate? All these miraculous things that happened, were they just made up? And they could not have been. So this is one important and powerful apologetic for us to see that all of the miracles in Scripture, all the amazing things that you see, especially the resurrection of Christ, it was witnessed by many. And you could even go to the generation and hear their attestation to it. So not only is that a legal witness that the author of Hebrews brings of why we should pay attention, but secondly, he says, of the signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit. Now you might ask, what kind of signs and gifts is the author talking about here? It's important for us to note first that the phrase signs, wonders, and miracles, those three words are often used together and they overlap in a generic way to encompass any number of miraculous events. And these events were given to authenticate the messengers. In Acts 2.22, we see an example of this. It says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you. How is he accredited? By miracles, wonders, and signs. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, we hear this same, these same three words all together. Paul uses these three to show that these are also the marks of a true apostle. He says, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. One such example of this type of miracle can be seen through Paul in Acts 19. It says God, in, in Acts 19, 11 and 12, it says God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So these miracles happened. This handkerchief was taken to heal people, not just to take away their sickness, but more importantly, to authenticate Paul's words. Now, are there apostles, capital A apostles, anymore today? No. So please don't be trying to buy a handkerchief from TBN. It will not work. They were there to authenticate the messengers. The gifts of the Holy Spirit functioned in a similar way. We see one list of these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. It gives us a list, wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, speaking in tongues, and interpretation of tongues. 
A gift of the Holy Spirit is a little bit different than a sign in that it's a more lasting and normative part of someone's life. It's something that's given by the Holy Spirit. It's a gift that has the same purpose of authenticating the messenger and also building up the church as well. It's significant to see here in Hebrews 2, and look at with me at verse 4. It says, The Holy Spirit distributed these gifts according to his will. It's significant to see that the Holy Spirit here is not an impersonal force or an, just an extension of the Father, but the Holy Spirit is himself a giver of these and distributor of these gifts. He has his own personality. He is his own person, and he's the one who distributes the gifts perfectly as he sees fit. Those in the Hebrew congregation would likely not have been able to refute the Holy Spirit's power they had seen. They wouldn't have been able to discount the eyewitnesses, and they had seen the resurrection life in many, and many of them were probably witnesses to these miracles as well. So they would have said, aha, I get what you're saying, preacher. I will listen to this message. I will pay more attention. It is authoritative. The question we must ask ourselves is, being 2,000 years removed from that congregation, in a day and age where it seems like God's word is perpetually being attacked, what witnesses do we have to testify to the word in its practical authority over all mankind? What witnesses do we have? Well, I will argue from this passage that it's the same witnesses that the author gives here. It's both the attestation of the eyewitnesses and it's the miracles, signs, wonders, and gifts of the Holy Spirit as well. These are the same two witnesses that we can rely upon today as well. I would argue that even though the, the back then they were audibly told of the eyewitness accounts by the generation before them, we have those accounts written down. And though while we're not audibly told, those eyewitness accounts were written down in manuscripts by the Holy Spirit, and they've been accurately preserved and supernaturally transmitted 2,000 years to us today so that you can open the Bible that you have right now in your lap and you can say, this is the word of God. What is 30 years or 2,000 years to God? If you believe in the God that created you, then you know that he not only purposely, supernaturally intended those eyewitnesses to see and hear and pass it along, not only to the next generation, but to many, many generations down the line to here we sit today. And so we still have eyewitness accounts that can tell us that these gospels could not have been made up. The second witness, the signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, they are a witness today as well, so that we can know to pay attention to the authority of the word. Now, while the Holy Spirit's power is not establishing new revelation, as the author of Hebrews was doing, this is very important, saints, the Holy Spirit is not establishing new revelation, just like the preacher to the Hebrews right now was preaching and it became scripture. That's not happening anymore today. But we experience the Holy Spirit's power in being able to spiritually discern, communicate, and live out Christ's words in his community. The Holy Spirit is alive and well and still in his community today, allowing us to spiritually discern, communicate, and live out Christ's words. Consider Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So the reason, saints, that anyone pays attention to the word is not because you're so convincing, is not because our logic is airtight, but it's because the Holy Spirit does what Ephesians 1 says. The Holy Spirit comes and regenerates the heart, makes the dead alive, brings spiritual blindness, takes spiritual blindness and opens the eyes of our heart so that we can see by faith and know that the word is true and accurate and we should give it its full authority in our lives. Because the things of scripture are spiritually discerned, we must pay close attention to it. And without the Holy Spirit, you will have no desire to pay attention to the word of God. You might think it's interesting, but it will not have true practical authority to help you and guide you in your decisions in everyday life. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit has uniquely gifted each one of you at Cambrian Park Baptist Church this morning. And now it is your job to use that gift that he's distributed to you to be faithful messengers, showing with your words and life that this great salvation should not be neglected, but it is indeed true. The same Holy Spirit who did signs and wonders and miracles to authenticate the writers of Scripture is still alive and he's working in us, helping us understand Scripture and authenticating it to those who we preach to. I could not be up here right now preaching on my own power. I am 100% reliant upon the Holy Spirit and I cannot pay, I cannot convince you to pay attention to me. My own persuasiveness My own illustrations will not hold your attention. But if I preach Christ's word accurately, the Holy Spirit will attend the word and the Holy Spirit will convince you of its authority. The same is true of your evangelism, saints. You are nobody on your own. But with the Holy Spirit in you, you possess the words that can bring the dead to life. You are nobody on your own. There's no evangelistic tactic, no strategy, no conversation trick that you're going to get to bring someone to faith. But with the Holy Spirit, you have Romans 1.16, the power of God, the gospel that can bring people from death to life. Isn't that encouraging? Now, the authority of the messenger truly does matter. Last fall, I was left a voicemail And the voicemail said they were from the IRS and that they had discovered that I had improperly filed my taxes and there was a warrant out for my arrest. As I was driving home, I was freaking out, half expecting a cop to pull me over and take me in. Well, when I got home, Yasmin Googled it and found out that actually this was a common scam. I felt really dumb, but it was a good lesson that even the most serious news doesn't matter if it doesn't come from an authoritative source, right? Even the most scary news does not matter if it's, not from a, if it's a scam, if it's not from an authoritative source. The Hebrew congregation, thankfully, had every reason to believe that the source of their information and the messengers that transmitted it to them were indeed authoritative. They didn't have this problem that I did with this, with this scam, Even so, let's say that they accepted the authority that they were given. Even so, the preacher still felt that it was necessary to exhort his congregation to pay close attention because he knew what is true of mankind and what's true of you in this morning, that we are all prone to drift away. 
even if you accept the authority and say, amen, Kurt, I hear what it's saying, and I want the word of God to guide my every step, the preacher to the, of, to the Hebrew congregation knows what's true about you and I. He knows that we are still prone to drift away, which leads us to our second point, the consequences of this message. We see the two negative consequences given for not paying attention. Here in verse 1, it says, pay much closer attention lest we drift away from it. And the second reason given is that if the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The second reason he gives, the second consequence, is implied that we will not escape. We will not escape the wrath of God if we do not pay attention and we drift spiritually from Christ. So he gives us these two negative consequences because he knows human nature and he knows that we, it's not enough to have the authority, but we need to be warned that it is an imminent threat to us to not pay close attention to this word. Notice the preacher includes himself in the exhortation. He uses the pronoun we. We must pay closer attention lest we drift away. This tells us that the danger of drifting in that context wasn't just relegated to the unbelieving bystanders who happened to saunter into that congregation. That's not who he's talking about. Maybe he's talking about them, but what he shows us in including himself in this exhortation is that even the most godly people in that Hebrew congregation should have been warned to pay closer attention and were capable of drifting away. Anyone, no matter how many years you've been in the church, no matter how many great works you've done, anyone who stops paying close attention to Christ's words will drift away. Let me say that again. No matter how many years you're a Christian or how many good works you've done, if you stop paying close attention to Christ's words, you will drift away. When understood properly and not written off by a false understanding of assurance of salvation, which we can have, we truly can have an assurance of salvation, <clears throat> but when that doesn't allow us to write the passage like this off, these warning passages in Hebrews have their right sanctifying impact and allow us to do what Paul told us as well in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. We're told that we as Christians should be examining ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. This is perfectly consistent with the reality of John 10, 28, where Jesus says that nobody can snatch his sheep out of his hand. Perfectly consistent. Examine yourself. Pay close attention or you will drift away. And, Jesus says, no one can snatch my sheep out of my hand. Perfect harmony with these two verses. Anyone who makes a practice of drifting away from Christ's words and doesn't repent, doesn't lose their salvation, but proves that their profession of faith was never credible in the first place. Whoever drifts away and never repents, they make a practice of sin, as 1 John says. It shows that they're not losing their salvation, but their profession, their life in the community was fake in the first place. Because we live in a world that is filled with truth and lies and spiritual warfare, it is impossible for any of us to stay still spiritually. 
to float. It's impossible. You are either always actively paddling closer to Christ or you are drifting away from him. Now, this drift may look different for different people, but it includes things like getting really busy with something that isn't outwardly evil. This drift might be a neglect of intentional scripture intake and prayer. It might be less and less commitment to heartfelt service and participation in the church community. And it will certainly be an overarching lack of spiritual hunger. Ask yourself, what ways this morning are you tempted to drift? What is pulling you away from paying closer attention to Christ's words? One major indicator that someone is drifting from Christ's word is when they start to drift away from Christ's bride. One major indicator that someone's drifting from Christ's word is that they start to drift from his beloved bride, his church. The church is where the words of Christ and those hard one another commandments have to be lived out. I have commonly seen people come into this very church super excited, but then not after long, their passion for the word of God cools and they grow disinterested and distracted. Having that energetic passion turn to a pattern of Sunday formalism. Saints, we have to pay close attention. This week, I celebrated the birth of the, the, the birthday of my, my daughter, Wilhelmina. She turned two this week. And I thought, man, how time flies. Where did those two years go? They just drifted by. And it reminded me that if I don't pay close attention to my little girls, to my daughters, and enjoy every moment, to not be so busy that I'm too busy for them, but I sit down and pay close attention to them, if I'm not actively doing that, then the years will drift by, and before I know it, they're going to be out of my home. Many of you, whatever stage you're like, whatever stage you're at in life, you know that time as you get older just seems to move faster. If you do not pay close attention, it's, it's a truism that you will indeed drift. It's true with age. It's true with Christ's word. So the second negative consequence that the author of Hebrews wants us to hear, and a motivator for us to pay attention to Christ's word, is that if we do neglect such a great salvation, as it says in verse 3, then we will not escape the righteous judgment of God. That's hard to hear, isn't it? That's hard. Scripture, friends, has hard edges to it. And if you sand down and soften the edges of Scripture, then you become Lord over Scripture. And you no longer have a dynamic relationship with God where he can challenge you and grow you. But you make God your butler, and you twist and mold Scripture to fit your purposes. Don't do that. Scripture has hard edges like this for a reason, because God loves you, and in, like any real marriage or any sibling relationship that you expect to grow in, you will be and should be challenged very often. Don't bristle at the hard edges of Scripture, but use them as an opportunity to look at yourself in the mirror, repent so you can walk in joy and freedom in a close relationship with Christ. Again, in verses 2 and 3, this lesser to greater logic that was employed to show that Jesus in his word is more authoritative than the angels, this lesser to greater logic is also employed to the severity of punishment. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. It says that 
if this message de- uh, declared by the angels, referring to the, the Old Testament law, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, if that happened in the Old Testament, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's ironic here is that the author of Hebrews is saying that in the new covenant, we can expect Christ to be just as strict, if not stricter, with bringing retribution to those who do not, who do not accept his salvation. This is completely the opposite of the, the tone we often hear today in our modern culture, that the New Testament is easier and lighter and softer than the, the harsh old. The, the author of Hebrews is actually employing the exact opposite logic. He's saying that if there's such a great salvation and we have even greater light and revelation now that God has given us more words and we have an even greater mediator, then the punishment will be even greater as well if we neglect him. 2 Corinthians 5.10 affirms this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're all going to stand before him one day. Every thought, every motive, every intention, every action will be laid bare, whether we've done good or evil. And we're promised here that we will receive back for what we have done. The same retribution that happened in the old covenant doesn't go away in the new. It's completely true in the new covenant. God will repay evil for evil. And God is right to do this, not only because he's so holy, but also because he's so good and loving, friends that anyone who utterly neglects, ignores, or is apathetic to the beautiful work of Christ and his salvation on the cross, anyone who is apathetic and neglects such a great salvation, what they're doing is they're neglecting God's infinite goodness, and therefore they deserve an infinite punishment in return. Because their sin and our sin is infinitely detestable, to an infinitely holy God. It's a lot of infinites, I know. But unless we take our Western understanding of retribution and say, I'm going to stand above God and say that he's harsh, we have to remember the the scale of holiness and the infinite magnitude of this great salvation if a passage like this is going to make sense. Brothers and sisters, apart from the pure grace of God, all of us, every single one in this room, we would neglect this great salvation and none of us would escape. Apart from the pure grace of God. Whether you believe right now, sitting here this morning, whether you believe you've neglected this great salvation or not, God wants you to pay much closer attention to what we've heard from Christ in the Bible, especially the gospel, the good news of the great salvation that he offers to all. What makes this salvation so great is that while every transgression or disobedience does indeed receive a just retribution, Jesus comes to you this morning and he says to each one of you, I'll take it. I'll take it. He says to you this morning, don't worry, my beloved. I'll take it for you so that you can be saved forever. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Can you taste that richness? Is that meaningful to you? Or are you apathetic 
And have you ignored and neglected such a great salvation? A really tragic thing happens in the life of a lot of Christians is that we don't pay close attention. We drift away. And the greatness of that salvation that may have happened years ago, we start to, it starts to lose its luster if we don't be vigilant. I want to remind us this morning, as God wants, uh, wanted to remind the congregation of the Hebrews that we do indeed have access to a great salvation. And unless you use the word great so much that it loses all meaning, let me remind you that this eternal king did the unthinkable by stepping into his own history, miraculously taking on human form and only perfectly paid close attention to his father. We don't pay attention. We're terrible. We start wandering off like sheep Christ only paid perfect attention to his father, never drifting away for even one second. Even as he was tempted by Satan to inherit the kingdoms of the world with no suffering, even when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he said, Father, if there's another way, and he was sweating drops of blood, even in those moments, Jesus didn't even drift one iota. He paid perfectly a close attention to the Father and said that your authority has practical meaning in my life and I will submit to you because you love me and I love you. He never once drifted, but instead went through with dying on a Roman cross, receiving the full wrath of God, the just retribution that we all should have tasted ourselves. He died on the cross and he rose from the tomb three days later declaring victory over sin and death. Amen? To all who turn from their sin, including the sin of apathy, including the sin of carelessness, and of not paying attention to Christ's words, for all who turn away from that sin and trust completely in the authoritative news of Christ, he promises to save with such a great salvation. This truly is a, the greatest news that you will ever hear in your life. Oftentimes, we hear people who watch the evening news or even now read news on their phone. There's nothing but bad news. When will there be good news for once? And you know what the news outlets try to do? They try to toss up some cheesy story about some animal or something. Say, oh, there's actually goodness in the world. No. There is, this is a broken world. There is a lot of bad news, but let me tell you, the best news you will ever hear, and before you open your phone or your paper or turn on the TV in the morning, the greatest news headline that you need to hear every morning is opening up your Bible and hearing the news that Jesus died to save you, that you have a great salvation that didn't just happen years ago and you got your getting to heaven free card, but is an active salvation that transforms you and sanctifies you every day and that God wants you to tell other people about. Jesus, the part of this great news is that he sends his Holy Spirit into your heart so that you right now, as I said before, are uniquely gifted by his Holy Spirit, uniquely gifted and equipped so that you can be a messenger yourself. So then if you have been paying close attention this morning to this sermon, then you've probably already asked, okay, Kurt, you keep saying pay closer attention, pay closer attention, okay. What do you mean? How do I actually do this in practice? Well, I'm sure if I polled the audience right now and we we're on a Wednesday night, I'm sure you'd have so many wonderful suggestions for all of us of ways that you pay closer attention. Let me end this sermon with three 
simple suggestions that I find, found to be helpful. First, find and protect unhurried time with God. One way that you can pay attention practically is to find and protect unhurried time with God. We live in a day and age where everything is go, 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 hurry, hurry, hurry. I know that many of you have jobs and have children and basically can't find unhurried time. But even if that time is when all your kids go to bed, even if that time is a lunch break when your boss isn't going to be barking at you, I'm sure if you love Christ enough that you will be able to find 15 to 30 minutes to an hour in your day somewhere where you can find that time and say, I'm going to protect this as if my life depended on it because it does. And I'm going to sit there and not be thinking about all the notifications on my phone, but this will be unhurried time with my Lord to sit, commune, and to pray. First suggestion. Take that for what it is and you apply it to your life. Second suggestion of ways that we can pay closer attention. Pick someone to discuss the Bible with at least weekly, if not daily. Pick someone in your life to discuss what you're reading with at least weekly, if not daily. This week when I was discipling uh, Thomas, we, we meet together. We, we're walking through Isaiah right now and just talking out loud about the word really solidifies what we're reading. Is that true for you as well? If you're forced to teach something or explain something, what can go in one ear and go out the other, when you're forced to articulate it and talk about what you believe, you're forced to pay closer attention to it and truly understand it. So I want to encourage you, if you don't have someone already, pick someone, whether it's your spouse, ideally another, a person of the same sex in this church you can disciple, spend time with, at least weekly, to talk about the word. Because when you do that, you're forced to pay closer attention to it yourself, and you're helping your hearer as well. And last suggestion, practically, take it with what you will and use it. One way that we can pay, pay closer attention to the word is by reading good Christian books and biographies that were not written in this century. You might say, this is weird, it's kind of out of place compared to the other two. Why I say this, the century we are in, oftentimes we are swimming in its own waters, and what we have is we are all born into a culture where we are conditioned with our presuppositions to come to the word and bring them to the word that cause us to obscure the true message of the Bible. Sometimes we don't pay attention because our cultural dust has covered over the pages and we bring so many assumptions to the table that we're not truly able to pay attention to the word of God. Like Pastor Keith said before reading the Nicene Creed, we have to stand on the shoulders of giants. When you read someone outside your century, in the 19th or 18th or even the 5th century, what you do is their perspective on the Bible blows that dust off your Bible and helps you to pay closer attention to it as you read it for what it is and not how you were culturally conditioned to interpret it. So I want to encourage you, the next book you choose to read, you can ask me or Pastor Keith for any suggestions or even Dylan. Um, pick a book and read a good Christian authors that are outside of our century. And that, by God's grace, you can glean from those people who are part of the church too, who you'll meet one day, and they can counsel you right now to help you pay closer attention to the word. Those are just three simple ones. Again, I'm sure you have your own ways that you can pay close attention. The important fact is we're doing it. Because of the authority and consequences of Christ's message, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. If we do so, saints, we will have the joy of being messengers, gifted by the Holy Spirit to take this message to others, 
and we will grow in our appreciation of the salvation wrought for us on Calvary's tree. We'll understand it to greater depths, and we'll grow in our hunger for the word of God, and we will want to pay closer attention because we'll find Jesus, this Jesus of chapter one of Hebrews, this great, amazing, eternal king is both our friend and our savior. Come to Jesus, pay attention to his word, and you'll be changed. Let's pray. Father, what a simple commandment. What a simple commandment that we often scoff at because we say we're not children. We don't need to be told to pay attention. That's only for kids. Oh, but Lord, forgive us for how hard our hearts are, for how callous we can become, and for how distracted we can be by all the things of the world. All the things that promise greater joy, peace, and security than the great salvation we have in Christ, I pray that you would reveal those to us and cause us to repent of them. Help us, Lord, to have the same confidence in the authority of the word that the congregation of the Hebrews did. Protect us from drifting away and help us to help ourselves and help others who we see drifting away in our midst. Thank you, God, that you are patient with us and you are continually holding that door open to run into your arms and to enjoy the great salvation you gave us by going to the cross on our behalf. We pray that this day would be a day that is filled with your Holy Spirit, that we are not a natural people, but a supernatural people empowered by you to glorify you through song and proclamation. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.